Welcome to FRT, the IIF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IIF. Today, I'm here with Conan French, Director on our team here at IIF, to discuss a number of digital economy dynamics that we see at play that are increasingly important as we think about data policy, fraud prevention, global trade in this digitized world, and evolving regulatory agendas that are increasingly trying to adapt. We wanted to have a bit of conversation to tie some of the strings together that we're seeing here at the IIF. Before diving into some of that work, I thought I'd just share that one of our primary observations here is that data is really at the core of a lot of what's going on, a lot of what the conversation is. It's an essential resource in today's economy, so the stakes are very high as the governments create the frameworks to regulate and control its use. And in this episode, we're going to look at some of the different vectors where we see the current policy debates moving, as well as the key takeaways from some recent staff papers on the impact of different data frameworks. So I was thinking today that we'd focus on three primary topics and work on tying those together. One is big tech and specifically rethinking the regulation of big tech. Um, The second is artificial intelligence and machine learning and the relevance of them being increasingly at a C-suite discussion. Um, And the third being digital economic cooperation involving aspects of data localization and other kinds of data frameworks and how we ensure that globally jurisdictions are still able to operate and uh, ensure the the flow of data across borders to best support economic cooperation. So with those three, um, I wanted to first set up big tech and I said specifically rethinking regulation of, of big tech. Starting with that, I wanted to look at a recent speech by BIS General Manager Augustine Carstens titled Big Techs in Finance, Forging a New Regulatory Path that he delivered just last week at the BIS Big Tech Conference that I was at, outlining an evolution of regulatory thinking on these points um, with more focus on a combination of entity activity and outcome considerations. And I think to start, a point in his speech that I thought was quite telling was where he said, to understand how big techs can easily make forays into finance, one must grasp the key role of data. And indeed, big techs have fully embraced the centrality of data in the digital economy. So how are you thinking about that, Conan? Well, I think scale is really what's important here. Scale drives so much about value in data, and big tech firms are positioned to really develop and deploy the uh, data-driven products, such as AI tools and insight models. And the role of regulation of big tech in financial services has been a bit of a policy puzzle for years as they try to grapple with how do we harness the benefits and the strengths that big tech can bring uh, to financial services and insights um, without some of those issues that we see in, in competition. And as you look at Karsten's speech, you know, he started off at the beginning talking about, as I look at the transcript, unrivaled experts in data management and analysis is how he described big tech firms and pioneers in leveraging AI and really that the, the benefits of the huge economies of scale that they have is what's at stake here. And I think that that's right. It's the scale and the size that matter when you're developing and deploying AI applications, insight models, and so many of those other things that would really be important in the future of finance. 
You know, something that I also really noted in the speech um, was where he outlined that the current regulatory approach is not fully fit for purpose to deal with the unique challenges or the unique set of challenges arising from big tech's entry into financial services. And so what might a regulatory construct look like? And he outlined three different possible approaches. One was something that he called the restriction approach, uh, which would prohibit big techs from engaging in regulated financial activities. This is connected to or follows from the traditional separation of commerce and banking that exists in many different jurisdictions. Um, He did point out, of course, that by restricting big techs from operating in these spaces, it would remove the numerous benefits that big tech services in finance have actually brought to date in terms of a lot of data analysis and and scale that, that the industry has to date benefited from. Second, he moved on to a potential segregation approach, um, which would require big tech financial services to be grouped together under the umbrella of a financial holding company that would have to meet prudential and other requirements. Effectively, this would be ring fencing that entity to mitigate the potential for contagion effects, he said, from the big tech's non-financial activities. So that would be one. There are potential pros and cons to this approach. You know, the pro certainly could potentially be, again, that ring fence of potential contagion effects to the financial um, industry. However, a con on on the opposite, opposite side may be a lowering in the marginal value of being or participating in these activities as it would be more difficult perhaps to realize synergies and and thus perhaps a a less participation by big techs that may otherwise provide benefits to the industry and again some some loss in value there. The third and final approach he outlined was an inclusion approach which would make big techs with significant financial activities subject to um, group-wide requirements Um, on governance, conduct of business, operational resilience, and only when appropriate, financial soundness. So this is to say more of an entity-based approach on the whole that took into account the the fullness of all of the activities that are taken into an entity and, and just regulating the entity itself, including looking, you know, potentially at the big tech parent. He ended with the segregation and inclusion approaches, if one looked at them together, acknowledging that to some extent they are perhaps mutually compatible um, and that a holistic approach is really necessary to to regulating the the space in these entities. So perhaps activity and entity-based, Conan, what, what do you think? I think that's where direction of travel has been headed for a little while. You first heard uh, this out of the Global Standard Setters last year. And as we said, they've been wrestling with that puzzle of how do they get the positives but deal with and appropriately address some of the, the, the challenges. And I think that that, that combination of um, a bit of a matrix of 
you know, moving to more of an activity approach, focusing more on outcomes, but keeping in mind the distinguishing characteristics of, you know, some big techs who just bring a totally different order of magnitude of scale and data and capabilities in some of these essential new tools. So I think you're right. That's the, the combination that um, they seem to be settling in on as they keep working through this. And they've been giving it a lot of careful thought for a couple of years now. And that's why I think this speech is really worth highlighting because it's a new evolution of thought from them. And it certainly is a, uh, a complex issue. I think across all, all three of those items, right? The first one, the restrictive approach is certainly a, a simple solution, but perhaps not uh, ideal or, or desirable. The second solution is also a you know, segregation approach might be fairly simple, however, has some downsides. And the inclusion approach is fairly more complex, I'm certainly combining the two, perhaps even more complex, but again, holistic and approach. Getting to the second topic here. So this you know, we move from big tech into artificial intelligence and machine learning, which I mentioned at the at the beginning, the increase in frequency of attention to AI and machine learning at the C-suite level um, that we're certainly hearing from many institutions and, and seeing, including in major, you know, major senior movements in organizational structures in large financial institutions and, and elsewhere. Also, just the increased focus on by the global standard setting bodies and regulators as they start talking about and thinking about aspects of AI and machine learning more, um, just to kind of grasp where it makes sense to weigh in or, or not, or just think about the construct. So so with that, I, I want to just ask you, Conan, what do you think is different now that is causing these questions and, and these topics to be at the C-suite level? I think a lot of these issues have been simmering on the back burner for a while. AI applications had you know, a flurry of progress a few years ago. And then I think now that OpenAI and ChatGPT have, have been driving so much attention um, and news coverage. And I think before that, the jurisdictions in the EU and China uh, had looked at AI, AI ethics, and how you could ensure ethical AI in society and was starting to put a lot of responsibility at the, the top line. And I think that that's a trend that we'll see, you know, moving along globally. It's also not just a regulatory consideration. I think customers are increasingly concerned and attentive to, you know, what are some of your machine learning and AI models doing? Do you have the right governance structure in place to manage them? So it won't just be a regulatory concern. I think it's entering the popular, um, imagination as well as they look at you know, many of these deployments coming out into their everyday life uh, and parents start worrying about their, um, their kids using chat DVP or even professors assigning um, you know, papers to use that new tool. And so I think it's just become uh, much more visible in, in daily life and the daily discourse and that's driving the policy discussion and accelerating it up to the C-suite as well for our members. Yeah, I think a, a second thing that really hits me is the consumer effect or the consumer drive, questions around how is data being used? How is their data being used? Do they know that it is being used? Do they know how it's being used? Do they know who is using it to do what? Um, and increasingly, as we see a 
drive to a portable data or open data construct, we see that drive, uh, again, coming from the consumer, wanting to be able to have access to their data or, or move their data where they see fit uh, more readily than perhaps they've been able to previously. And so when I think about that, I think that you know the dynamics around conversations in AI and machine learning and the, the use of the technologies by institutions to analyze consumers' data is increasingly judged by the consumer um, in a way that it was not previously. And perhaps it's simply more visible now because we actually have all of this information digitized in a way that they can tangibly move it around themselves. So perhaps we're not as aware of the analysis of the data on a lower scale previously prior to these, these large tools. I think that's right. And in the 2022 um, IF machine learning survey, uh, we looked at two application areas, AML and credit risk scoring. And in addition to the, the general market signals that we picked up, such as the you know, increased use and deployment, uh, more critical applications being used, you know, regional adoption trends, which were fairly consistent around the world, we also looked into some of the questions about model risk governance tools and, and data management oversight. And we saw that the good news is the financial services has a very good base to build on. When you look across the entire digital economy, the FS industry is one of those that already has very good established procedures and, and governance models to manage data, look after data, uh, and to oversee and manage um, models. And so it's really for the financial services industry a question of upgrading and deploying a lot of practices that they've had in place for you know, models uh, and model oversight for you know, many years. And I think that that puts the industry in a very good place as uh, many others grapple with this across the economy. Yeah, there really are a lot of a lot of structures and practices in financial institutions for model risk governance, as you noted, that are already applicable and that FIs are certainly using already as as they apply artificial intelligence. And I think we should you know really think about that in, in terms of any potential regulation that comes in the future to ensure that we. We approach it by saying, you know, what actually is it that we're trying to solve if, if we believe that we need further regulation? And do we actually need to solve it or is it already in place, um, structured in, in institutions um, and we don't need a second layer of regulation? Certainly, however, you know, the questions around governance and oversight, um, while institutions are used to thinking about just broadly enterprise questions of how you uh, govern and, and oversee various practices. Here, I think those questions are particularly pertinent right now and are somewhat new in just thinking through questions like, you know, who should be on an oversight committee? What level of authority should that committee have? What exactly, you know, does it look like a committee or, or, or some other kind of governing council or board? Just many, many other questions that would be specific to these technologies and the applications of them and, and data um, overall. I think getting back to, you know, I had mentioned the consumer not wanting to be surprised, right? So, so the idea that the use of data should be unsurprising and then three kind of questions come to mind in terms of the application of AI and machine learning being, you know, one, can you apply it? Um, two, should you apply it? 
And then third is how do you go about applying it? So when to play, um, how you should play, what do you bring, how do you solution it so that you're bringing value to the underlying customers. Um, But all of those questions come after asking, can you, and then really should you, right? And I think you've also laid out some of the important elements that will drive trust for use of these new tools in the financial services industry. And those were transparency and disclosure. And that's, I think, going to be really important going forward when we look at some of the early reactions to chat GDP and and how, for instance, a professor at Stanford dealt with it instead of trying to outlaw this new tool. He said, actually, you know, papers need to use this new tool, but I want you to share with me uh, sort of the parameters that you put in, how you directed the AI to write the paper uh, and what sort of, you know, training you, you engaged. And so I think that that is consistent with the transparency and disclosure that consumers will increasingly look for when they want to know how and where has AI been employed, you know, what sort of data and models were being used to come to these decisions. And I think that's part of the dialogue that will be increasing. But again, as I said, you know, this is a society-wide effort as different bodies try to deal with the use of new data sources and, and these new AI tools. And I think the FS industry is going to be in a very strong position to um, you know, help contribute and, and drive some of that discussion as uh, regulators of different sectors and, and regu- cross-sectoral regulation comes to the fore. So let's move us on to our third and final topic for today, the topic of digital economic cooperation. And I know, Conan, you've done a fair amount of work on this over the years, um, a number of different publications that the IIF has put out looking at strategic frameworks and then various case studies. Why don't you share with our listeners some of those? Yeah, over the years, we've been concerned at what, beginning with data localization requirements, but really then the proliferation of other policies, privacy and other licensing regulations that have had a a very constrictive impact on the flow of data across sectors and the flow of data within the financial services industry and increasingly across borders. So as we saw the proliferation moving beyond just data localization to a whole host of uh, constraints, we started looking for uh, bright spots in the policy conversation and the Japanese presidency of the G20, where they first launched their data free flow with trust initiative, seemed to be a a really important recognition of that role of data and its importance and how it can drive the most economic value for actors when it's permission secured, but can flow freely across borders in real time. And with Japan taking up the G7 presidency, The issue may not be in the finance track prominently, but we expect um, to see it overall as uh, Japan would like to, I think, return to some of those principles that they championed in data free flow with trust. And so as we watched that uh, debate, we thought that it would be useful to return to some of the papers that we had put forward, but try to make it a little more tangible for folks. And we're doing a series of case studies right now where we're looking at the impact of restrictive data policies broadly across the economy and and where real-world pain points might emerge. The first one we've put out um, a week and a half ago looked at the impact on fraud prevention. This is a place where we've had some great success stories as the use of AI and machine learning tools and the availability of new data have enabled uh, networks to prevent fraud in near real time and also enable payments that might have been blocked by clunkier fraud prevention tools before. This is important because we see, you know, 
probably a doubling of fraud uh, over the next decade. So if we don't have really good tools that could do something like one global payments network has seen their advanced systems prevent 26 billion in fraud uh, in 2021 and screen 30% more transactions at the same time. And that's important because it enables business. You know, you're not preventing business. You're not preventing SMEs or others from authorizing transactions and conducting their business. Uh, but you are capturing more of, of that, you know, fraud and, and the bad guys trying to use the system. So that's the first place that we looked. The second that we'll look are the impacts that these policies might have on AML and KYC. So while fraud prevention, we've got a great story that's kind of threatened by restrictive data policies. AML and KYC is an example where we see that greater flow and greater sharing of data could really make a transformative difference, but we you know, certainly don't want to see any backpedaling. And then the third area where we'll take a look is in insurance and cross-border travelers insurance. And so this is an example, again, where Somebody's off in a market and the ability for their health records, health data to you know, move quickly can make the difference between coverage, life and death. And it's just another very tangible case example uh, as we try to make this data policy debate a little more focused on the trade-offs and costs that data policy that's restrictive can have on real world applications for the economy broadly. There certainly are costs, as you noted, Conan, in terms of data localization's impact on the ability of global platforms to operate in a global nature, as opposed to having to effectively operate increasingly in a localized manner in each jurisdiction if data is kind of walled off into um, just one jurisdiction being being held there. Uh, you know, we earlier started the conversation today around the importance of scale and the return and, and value that can often be realized associated with scale. And certainly this would be an example of being kind of taking apart scale, if you will, bringing scale much down to a, uh, a local um, level that would impede the um, fluid functioning of the financial system and, and for that matter, you know, digital trade and other other aspects that ha- are not explicitly financial but would impact all industries. And I think we are seeing that in, in multiple places. And that's why I think, you know, digital economy agreements have looked at that macro development and tried to work on it. It's also important, we like to note that it's not just the impact of that algorithm or, or a denuding of a global platform. But that means that the end user, the SME who might want to, you know, access um, the latest and greatest modeling technique out of a cloud service provider or, you know, an a entrepreneur uh, who benefits when they can plug into, you know, some data driven product or, or source off the platform. They um, see a erosion of value and erosion of benefit and erosion of opportunity as well. So as we engage in these policy debates and advocate for what we think is good for the economy and good for you know, most sectors in the economy, it's important to also remember that the end users end up uh, suffering and having some trade-offs that people don't necessarily think about either. Absolutely. At the end of the day, it really gets back to the consumer on, on many of these levels. Turning to, to close out the day, so things to watch for the remainder of the year. What's top of your mind, Kenan? Well, I think we see 
the issue being dealt with in different forums. And so I think that's one of the challenge. We said data was at the core, and it really is at the core of the future of finance, is at the core of big tech, it's at the core of the digital economy broadly. And that means that it's probably going to be dealt with in lots of different places. We have, you know, sectoral approach to regulation right now. That was something that Karstens, I think, had recognized in his speech as well. So I think watching for where these debates pop up and making sure that they're well engaged will be important. So it may be that a technology and economy ministry uh, might be driving part of the G7 conversation, but it may have really material impact on what the future of finance looks like. So because I think data has become so core to much of what we're building in the future of finance, it really means that we need to stay engaged and focused on a broad set of policy forums, uh, not just only the you know, traditional forums. And I think you see Karsten recognizing that in his speech. You see conversations about cross-sectoral coordination and regulation. And I think watching what happens in the future digital economy agreements and in the G7 conversation and, and what might come along the lines of data free flow with trust uh, will be worth the, the financial services industry really watching and engaging closely because it will end up shaping a lot of the env operating environment. It, it certainly will matter a lot that we, we approach all of these questions, and including data governance, management, and the others that we laid out today with a viewpoint on you know what benefits the consumer at the end of the day, what promotes a safe and sound financial system and a vibrant economy globally, and ensure that as we ask these questions, we do actually look at what benefits do we get by the presence of particular players in an ecosystem and what risks risks are, are there as well. I think oftentimes in uh, financial services and at least in the, the regulatory sphere, we are prone to quickly um, looking for risks because we like stability and we, we like you know ensuring that we have a good handle on health from that standpoint and don't always do quite as good of a job at looking at, well, what are actually the benefits that we're getting from various players being partners, service providers, and yet also competitors, and and how do we support the you know the value um, realization that we get out of data analysis and and the technology that that we do have at our fingertips and that we depend on very much, while also protecting the safety and soundness of the financial system and best serving consumers around the world. So with that, we're going to wrap up our discussion for today. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IAF website as well at IAF.com.